Hey, everybody. I'm Jamin. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Dom Boyd, Cantar Managing Director, UK. Cantar was founded in 1992 and characterizes itself as a data, insights, and consulting company. It has more than 30,000 employees working in 100 countries in various research disciplines, including social media monitoring, advertising effectiveness, consumer and shopper behavior, and public opinion. It is part of WPP, and its global headquarters are in London, UK. Prior to joining Kantar, Dom started his career in 1992 as a content and program director at WMUA 91.1 FM. Since then, he has started several successful companies and has served as a strategic executive at top agencies, including Publicist Poke, APG, and Adam and Eve. Dom, thank you for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thanks for having me. Today, almost everyone has taken surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for professional market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel, and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market research feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodology, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your idea from your target market in a presentation-ready format. Oh, and by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, please visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast comes from FuelCycle. This episode is brought to you by FuelCycle Ignition. Ignition is the agile insights platform that enables leaders and their teams to improve product, brand, customer, and employee experiences with no insights experience required. With FC Live virtual focus groups and interviews, an ad effectiveness solution, and survey automation capabilities, FuelCycle Ignition offers the only all-in-one Agile Insights ecosystem for supercharging the relationship between brands and their customers, and serves the world's most innovative brands, including Google, Hulu, Tufts Health Plan, Kahart, and more. To learn how Ignition can take your research to the next level, visit FuelCycle.com. So, like to start with some context. Tell us about your parents and how they informed what you do today. This is a surprisingly challenging question. You know, I think you always want to be what your parents aren't, maybe. And, you know, I've definitely followed, tended to f- sort of follow my own path, I guess, or at least I thought so. Freud might have a different point of view. But um, I always wanted to be a war photographer or a psychologist or a musician. And I sort of found my way after spending 50, sort of, uh, 15 months hitchhiking from Alaska down to Peru. I sort of found myself working as a strategist in an advertising agency called Saatchi and Saatchi. And that sort of seemed to me a little bit like a decent compromise. You've kind of got the adrenaline of being a raw photographer. You've kind of got, you know, you do back then, at least you were doing focus groups and qualitative research, which is sort of a tick for psychology box. And even if I wasn't, you know, using my strapping on my guitar and presentations, you did get to serve the cultural zeitgeist a bit. So it sort of ticked quite a lot of boxes. And perhaps looking back, I think maybe the red thread is around understanding people. And, uh, Creativity is, for me at least, is a is a kind of 
powerful. It's like voodoo. It's a really powerful kind of magic. And I think I was very much instinctively drawn to, I, I'd call it a humanist school of creativity. So people like Bill Burnback, who did Volkswagen stuff, um, really famous Volkswagen stuff in the 60s. And David Abbott in the UK, who did The Economist and Yellow Pages, communications. And both, all of those kind of campaigns have very deep, deep uh, intelligence and really deep empathy. Um, and that's what makes them so powerful. And that's something that I've always tried to apply in developing grand strategy, which I guess is my, my core skill set originally. Um, and brand building is sort of the art of connecting business with, with people through valuable moments. So creating ideas and services that are memorable and re- emotionally rewarding. And uh, that's, that's sort of simple to say, but really hard to do, And uh, which is why so few things are sort of famous i guess and you know i, I think that's probably i don't i don't know how my parents necessarily informed that but um that's definitely the path i've tended to follow is trying to understand people and finding ways of uh but are fascinating in, in doing that and as well as uh, obviously sort of paying the bills and that's my entry point into this wonderful world really did either your mother or father play an instrument uh, yeah, they, uh, my, my dad, uh, you know, he, he didn't play an instrument, but his voice was his instrument. And he used to sort of drag me down to church. And uh, we used to sing and I used to really love singing, actually, in choirs. Uh, my mum's a pretty decent pianist, actually. So, yeah, you could sort of say implicitly music runs in the family, but um, it didn't feel like that. But looking back on, on it, I, I think that was the case. I've certainly got a lot of love for music. And you play guitar? I do play guitar. Um, I do DJing when not at Cantor. And I do, you know, I do my own music as well. I've played in bands. I've managed bands, started a record label back in the day. Uh, and I still make music. So uh, it's something that I love to do. I, I find it sort of, it's a bit like painting a picture, really trying to imagine a world of, of sounds and using, you know, but sometimes songs, sometimes soundscapes, but creating, creating a world around that is something I, I love doing and love, think, love thinking about. For me, it's as much as a, a sort of a, an, an intellectual exercise as an emotional one. Yeah, I got a lot of joy from that. And you can build stories inside of music, which is really interesting. How much do you think creativity plays in your success? Well, you know, as I, I, it's something I perhaps took for granted for many years because I perhaps because I've always done music since I was. I don't even know, six, seven years old. And perhaps because I started my career in advertising, you know, I, I, I sort of imagined it was pretty easy. And as I've sort of become more experienced, what I've discovered actually is it is just, it is a little bit of a dark art and a, a bit of a secret superpower really. And for people actually find it really valuable. For me, it seems like it's relatively easy to think differently because actually there are some very simple almost like formulas that you can use to, to help you think differently just by flipping things, simple things like flipping things on their head, doing the reverse, uh, asking the opposite of what a question is and things like that. And um, perhaps over time, I've just become tuned into doing those things or to thinking about how those can add a new perspective. And what I've discovered is people do seem to find that valuable. I certainly enjoy doing it. But is it a secret to my success? I, I guess, but I've been in the fortunate position of having worked in the creative industries for a lot of my career. So... I'm not sure if I'd call it the secret of success, but it's something I've certainly been privileged to be able to apply for quite a period of my career. So Kantar has been successfully layering in strategy, CX, and executive coaching. Yeah. Tell us about the evolution of Kantar, because it certainly didn't start there, and how you guys are uniquely meeting the market. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of pretty unique, really. I mean, I've been working, I guess, at, at the, the brand building front line, if you like, for some time. And there have been a lot of changes in that time since I've been in the industry. I came into the industry in the 1990s. And, you know, since then, obviously, I, I worked on a brand called Yellow Pages. I don't know if anyone remembers that brand. But essentially, it was, it was, it was this huge book of any sort of small business, like a plumber or, you know, any, anything you ever wanted within in yellow pages and essentially it's like google but a book version of google so it, you know every time i've been in the industry i've seen uh, the transformation through the growth of digital you know the role of social platforms the role of social commerce the role of dtc brands of new business models of sustainable innovation all of these new things and you know a world that's gone from a world of yellow pages to a world of you know sort of voice technology and enabled alexa it's, it's pretty incredible really to be in a business in that time and that's that saying, you know, if, if all you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. It became really clear to me that fundamentally there were very new challenges for businesses and for marketeers uh, and that new business models for driving value and creating brands were happening. It kind of went much deeper than advertising and were much more focused on customer experience, on digital innovation, on responsible business leadership, on using AI and technology to put a customer's heartbeat really is the backbone of, of business. And, you know, I, it sort of, for me, it feels like we're entering a new era for business and for brands, sort of a shift from what I'd call donut brand building, where you create value through a, a very glossy surface layer that's very enjoyable and advertising driven, but ultimately pretty hollow to really a world where we're, you know, I'd, I'd call it sort of Apple brands, where, you know, building Apple brands, where you're driving strong core values that are nourishing the core and focusing more on behaviors that link to those values and really using empathy to create enriching experiences. And for, for me, I mean, partly that's a shift from service and well, from selling to creating services. And it, it requires a much more connected mindset. And so for me, the evolution of Kantar is very much interwoven in, into that. The world of Kantar, what was originally DNF and Millwood Brown, uh, in the 1990s and early noughties. The shift towards Kantar is an integrated set of skills mirrors that shift in society and that shift in marketing and businesses to, you know, from standalone specialisms to something that's much more connected, much more end-to-end, -end, much more digitally driven, much more holistic, much more incorporating, putting technology at the heart. And that for me is why Kantar is a really a special place. Um, you're able to apply that sort of strategic intelligence muscle, which can help shift the dial for business and use that connected, those connected skill sets in spades and, you know, have a ruthless application to driving brand value. And of course, what Kantar has got, which is, you know, really its magic superpower is, is this thing called Brand Z, which is all about driving, you know, apply, identifying the, the value drivers of businesses and showing how that's translating into financial value um, outcomes. So for me, I was very excited to join Cantor for all of those reasons, really, because for me, it, it showcase, it's like holding a mirror up to the future of business and building value. Another factor was really culture. You mentioned coaching, and Cantor very much embodies coaching and applies coaching, not just on the leadership team, but trying to cascade that through the organization. It's got a very empathetic culture, a very collaborative culture, a very strong role modeling culture. And those are sort of the qualities which provide, I believe, the foundation for, for building a better future and for being a, a good and fun and enjoyable and enriching place to work, really. And for me, I, I perhaps Canpa, I think the shift that's undertaken over, over the, the last decade is fundamentally 
a shift from a market research company to a business transformation company. We've got a mission to equip organizations to make better decisions through superior intelligence, really. It's a bit like, you know, so you could say it's a bit like Bloomberg for business. And that for me is a really exciting place to be at and to help be part of a leadership team. I want to dive in right now because we're entering into like a post-COVID time. And in this post-COVID world, is the office going to look different? (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would perhaps challenge, are we ever going to enter a post-COVID world? I mean, I, I don't know. Let's hope that we are. But there is a, you know, I think there perhaps is a scenario where this thing continues to play out indefinitely. I, I know that's quite hard to, for people to get their heads around, but we don't have a vaccine. It's not entirely impossible. It's not the first time we've had a pandemic, but it is the first time we've had one on a global scale that's impacted the way it has. So it's not impossible. This is the new normal. So that's one thing to consider. I mean, I, I think the the other thing that we're all discovering is it's perfectly possible to collaborate with computers and with technology. It's just a bit less... It's just different. I think what you do lose is, and this is a big problem, you lose the ability to read people's body language. So it's much more draining mentally for people. And you lose the, you can still collaborate. And we've, in Kantar, we've done some brilliant experiments with ways of new ways of collaborating and using it as a catalyst for actually really working in different ways, in, in better ways. So we're not working around the problem. We're using the problem as a springboard for improvement. And there are all sorts of things you can do there. But I do think you lose, I guess, I don't know if you call it a water cooler moment, but, you know, those ad hoc side adjacent conversations. And for me, it's a little bit, what you lose is the magic of connection and through those unexpected emotional conversations that can happen unexpectedly, serendipitous conversations, perhaps. Those are the things that really drive the deepest relationships. So I think that that is something which I think the world is sort of working out how to replicate online rather than offline. I think what the new ways of working are, I suppose we're all adapting to it, aren't we? But definitely an optimistic way of looking at it and sort of saying that it's just as productive. And I think what what we are seeing is a lot of people are actually quite enjoying working from home. And not everyone, but there's definitely a big cohort of people that are really enjoying this new normal and wondering why, you know, what is the role of the office now you know what what is does the office do better than we can currently do the way that we're currently connected and that's a really question to explore i think going forward really my hypothesis on this point is that companies before it was binary you were either a work remote culture or you were in office culture and if you had remote employees in that environment then they were basically they didn't know how to react interact because they didn't have that opportunity like you said but now that we've all been forced to work remote, I think companies are going to look at it. How much time do I need to spend in the office uh, or my employees need to spend in the office? And who are the employees that I need to have in the office when I'm there in order to create those opportunities for magic and collaboration? But as to if it has to be binary, maybe it looks like it's more something in, in between, right? So that would be interesting to see how it plays out. But anyway, so uh, yeah. a little bit off topic. Sorry about no, that. It, um, it's kind of wonderful. It's very liberating. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, do I want to commute back in every day, you know, at the same time? There's a, I think we're seeing a lot of changes that we've, I've, I've seen a couple of studies done on this and we, we've certainly done our own studies in, in Kantar as well. It's fair to say it's surprising the amount of people that say that they prefer the new way of working and that they actively don't want to return to the old ways of working. And, you know, in terms of by which I mean commuting 
to a physical office. Uh, and I think the percentages around that are, are pretty astonishing from what I've seen. Quite whether that translates into a new future, who knows? But I think it could be very liberating. Very liberating for anyone that's got, a, you know, needs to look after kids. Very liberating for people that like to work creatively. Very liberating for thinking about how we use time more productively, you know, within businesses and the way that you get different quality thinking and different quality tasks which you can accomplish when you're not in the office to when you perhaps are in the office. So I think that's useful and it gets us to thinking about what is the value of work? What are the different kinds of values? Uh, you know, you can segment your value, your work value into different kinds of qualities. And maybe that's something we haven't started to acknowledge or done enough of historically. And this could be a catalyst for thinking more about that. And if that helps us get more balanced lifestyles and more satisfied lives and spend more time with our kids and the, the, those that matter, our loved ones, yeah, um, friends and family, that, that's surely a positive thing for society. So if I look at it optimistically, I hope it's a catalyst for positive change. Yeah, it's funny. The I have a friend, he's an executive at a publicly traded company here in the US. They've had very aggressive operational goals for improving efficiency, and they've missed those goals repeatedly year over year. They've actually achieved their 2020 goal already in just two months once they entered a work remote environment. Wow. Yeah. And so it's it's pretty and that was but an accident. I mean for all intents and purposes. And now they're thinking, gosh, what if we actually like really dial this in? That could <laughs> could even have bigger returns. So it's gonna yeah, it's a neat time. I didn't mean to take yeah. us so far off track. <laughs> I do want to talk about international research. So when you think about doing work in other countries, what are some common mistakes that you see people make? So look, I, you know, I'm going I'm to put my cards on the table here and and go. Look, I've been in this, you know, the research side of this business, or at least in terms of Cantar, for a relatively short time as a, an applier of research. However, I've been on the agency side for a long time and commissioned international research myself, as you know, within the creative agency sphere and as a strategist. And I've obviously seen had the enviable position of seeing a lot of international research being done by my clients and having to try and use that. And the things that I think I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert in international research because that would be stretching credibility a little bit. However, I mean, there are definitely things I've experienced and been, you know, sort of a, myself and seen others experience. I can sort of they're just raise questions for me. I think one, one of them is what I call the expertise trap in trying to just cover every single market that, you know, and every market variable. And you end up with this insane matrix of different research happening in different markets. And it just eats up costs. I'm a big fan of just get, you know, sort of, a, a, of good enough, I suppose. And research is, shouldn't be an academic exercise trying to cover off every single, single sample cell, at least not in my book. It, it's only a tool to give clients an advantage they wouldn't otherwise have through better understanding. No more, no less. So I would do less, but better. So that's one thing. I think perhaps another thing is just not being tuned in enough. With international research, You, despite going to all of this effort to doing lots of different territories and sample cells and whatnot, um, sometimes the research can end up being the worst of all worlds and just end up being a, an average. Uh, and like all averages, you know, it, an average is a, a Frankenstein measure, really. And you can end up with just vanilla 
insight or just a lack of insight. You're just trying to find the common denominator and in doing so just end up with a wash of nothing very insightful at all. And, you know, and typically you see that happening in global ad campaigns all the time. They connect with precisely no one because they're made of precisely nothing. You know, there's no insight really. Um, they're just lowest common denominator. And I think it's the same is true of research, really, in trying to, you know, I think the richness is around the edges. And so I would counsel towards, you know, running towards the stuff that pulls things apart rather than necessarily just trying to find the, always for the commonest of grounds because you end up with, um, you end up with something that isn't very differentiated ultimately because every, every, you know, your competitors are doing the same thing. And so you just end up with, yeah, with, with stuff that doesn't really give you an advantage ultimately. It's more interesting to look towards the edges, look for where the differences are and to, you know, try and embrace the differences and really, and do unexpected things is the other thing. Sometimes it's very easy to go for a standardized approach for all sorts of very good economic reasons sometimes. But actually, culture is is a fascinating, wonderful, weird, strange, diverse thing. And I, I would experiment more and just have more fun with doing things that allow color and texture of culture to really permeate national research findings and debriefs. You know, it should be as fun and as exhilarating as when you go and visit those cultures and often it just ends up in a horrid powerpoint deck of 200 slides which for me is sort of death by a thousand cuts really (laughs) i like your framework there a lot i think market research specifically has fallen into the average trap right and the two examples that i go to is nobody has 2.3 kids and if bill gates walks into a bar on average everybody is a millionaire (laughs) so like right so (laughs) So we, we have to like reframe it and humanize that data. And a, a way to do that, of course, is immersion. And obviously, the, the more entertaining that is, <laughs> the better. Off the top of your head, do you have any like creative ways that you may have approached international work in the past? Yeah, I mean, I remember working with one agency, shall remain nameless, you know, much more ethnographic style stuff. So and anything that involves almost like a documentary can be pretty useful, pretty powerful. Yeah. So not just Vox Pops of people kind of filming themselves, but actually sort of observe, like genuinely, like a film crew does, observe what happens around a person or a family or a cohort. That uh, can be really interesting. So I've used stuff where we've ended up presenting the findings through playing cards and each card was essentially like a i don't don't know if you have this outside of the uk there's a card uh, a kids card game in the uk called top trumps and it's you know essentially for example you get fast cards and they're all really cool cards and every car you know you get top speed and miles uh so miles per hour and fuel consumption and torque and a whole load of cool, you know, weight maybe, a whole load of cool things. And we ended up presenting this through the medium of top trumps uh, in terms of a debrief. That was that was a lot of fun and really powerful actually inside the organization. I think that, that's possibly the most powerful bits of research really because actually seeing it, how it was used inside the organization as a result and take hold um, was better than any... PowerPoint deck I've ever seen, really. It became a fun thing to play around with and for people to spread the message of, okay, this is what this audience segmentation is all about and some of their cool characteristics. So that was fun and effective. (laughs) What are some tips or recommendations when thinking about international work? 
I think it's a little bit what I would say around any bit of thinking about, you know, if I was thinking about tips or recommendations, I think I'd be thinking about how to add value to consumer insights generally. Uh, and it's there is applicable to international researchers to any anyone else, you know, because I've been on the fortunate, I think, to be on the receiving end of all kinds of insight data and debriefs. And I've got to be honest and say that often insight is often the last thing that insight data and debriefs bring. Often it, it's very easy to fall into the trap of just information overload, which by definition is sort of the opposite of insight. And if the role of a business is really just the function of any business is really just to create positive change. That's it. There's there's no there's not really much more magic around it than that. So, but so there, I think there are a couple of things that can help create that positive change, and I think that that's applicable to international research too. So, one would be around, I guess, having the spirit and focus and entrepreneurial energy of a startup, really. So, just dynamic testing and learning which has an action focus is for me a good thing because it means you do have that action focus and it's not just rigor mortis reports. I would have, I, I've got a positive bias, I think, towards the commercialization of insight and focusing on business outcomes and tangible growth. So anything that links, any research which links into market share, which links into revenue, which look, links into profit, always gets a thumbs up in my book. And it's very rare that I see uh, that much research doing that. And I think for one of the other things might be around sort of creating cultural impact inside organizations, thinking about stakeholders that will ultimately use this research, not just in terms of the inside function or customer intelligence function or research function, but like who are the, ultimately the stakeholders that are going to be using this and what is it that they find valuable and how can you most influence them? So it's this, you know, the old adage of a, a picture tells a thousand words. So really be fearless in bringing real people into the boardroom. It's almost the flip side of thinking about the profit and market share point, really. And often international research doesn't do that as well as it could do. And thinking about who, you know, why is this research valuable? You know, what, what's it really, what's its real role? What's the problem it can solve behind the problem? And so those are, those are things I would be actively encouraging people doing international research to be thinking about and, and people that aren't doing international research to be thinking about as well, because that's where I feel areas where research often falls very flat, shall we say, justly so. Do you see cinematography playing an increased role? Well, do you know, yeah, well, potentially. I mean, it can be incredibly powerful, especially if it's produced well. I think, I, look, I don't know if it's just down to cinematography. I'm, I'm a big fan of that because I've seen how powerful it can be. I've seen the influence it can have emotionally on people. I think ultimately, if I think about, if I stand back from profession of research, our job is to, you know, to help businesses take positive actions to move forwards. But to do that, you've got to influence people. And to do that, one of the tools you can use that's very powerful in influencing people is storytelling. And humans are meaning-making machines. We, you know, our brains are hardwired to find meaning and stories and everything. Whether it, and sometimes that's for, sure you can tell stories through PowerPoint Deck. Hey, I'm, I'm as <laughs> guilty and as good or as bad as the next person at doing one of those. But I would encourage the research profession to think about what's pow most powerfully tell the story 
of the insight that you've found, the insight that you've got, and thinking think about the outcome of how that story plays out, where you're going to play that, and how can you scale that story? Um, and sometimes that's through vox pops, or you know, the, the power of technology now to allow people to capture their emotions through emojis and through video and through cinematography and other things like that. You can tell stories in all kinds of ways, but I put a lot of effort in into that. It's always surprisingly powerful. You know, no no amount of statistics is as powerful as one person's story. I mean, politicians get that really well, actually, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, and as do charities. They often tell a story through the, the medium of one child in need or one human in need, half of them through dry statistics that land very flat. And that's because they know that it, it's more powerful as an influencing tool. That's what they've discovered over years of doing communications work. So we, maybe we can learn something from them. How has the global pandemic impacted doing research at an international level? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think firstly, there's less research happening on a total level. It's forced us to be on more entrepreneurial, though, hasn't it? And it's forced us fundamentally, you know, obviously there's less opportunity, sometimes no opportunity, for doing face-to-face, sort of using face-to-face methodologies in the physical sense. But what we're able to do is obviously explore the frontiers of what technology allows us to do and to lean harder into that and to really accelerate our learning curve around how you can get really good high quality insight really quickly and cheaply and that's got to be a good thing as long as you're still you know connecting with humans and you know sort of using it as a catalyst for deeper understanding rather than just doing that shaving your margin and shaving the cost off so for me it there are all kinds of positives that the pandemic has brought it's also allowed us to explore different kinds of questions in particular around customer experience in particular around strategy I think it's brilliant. It allows a lot of the questions that clients are asking us, very upstream questions, like what's our you know, demand forecasting, new business models, uh, reinvented experiences, uh, reinvented strategy. All of that stuff is, for me, it's like catnip. I mean, I've got, I've got to say, it's re- you know, so I would say that that is a potential positive springboard for the industry generally to be having much more upstream conversations and to demonstrate the value it can really add to those conversations for those people who are equipped to do so. Hmm. So speaking of being equipped, do you have, whether it's tools, technologies, or maybe even like methodologies, what sh- what should be in the toolbox of the researcher to maintain an edge in consumer insights? Well, so, okay, so loads, loads of different ways to answer this. So, you know, so I, I think there are some key sort of uh, skills, if you like, and then there are sort of tools around that. So I think in terms of skills, I would sort of counsel everyone just to listen harder. You know, I think that there's a, this is a cultural reset moment and for – you know, organizations and institutions have systematically lost the ability to really empathize. And, uh, you know, 2020 has shown there's really important lessons for us to learn around that. And it is, you know, it is time to truly understand your audience as people, not just as consumers. So average, well, you know, I talked before about my dislike of averages, because they're a great place to hide insight. So it's possibly there's it's time to place less emphasis on AI and more emphasis on EI and uh, emotional intelligence. I would also sort of say maybe this is a time for action, not words. And, uh, you know, we've never seen so much change, happen- change happening to organizations. And organizations have never needed to change more to understand consumers more. So those are really good opportunities 
for us as an industry to be responsible as well as responsive and to galvanize change and to set the agenda for organizations. So those are kind of what I'd call skill sets, but there are some specific methodologies in terms of the pandemic. Well, you know, I, I, I maybe wouldn't, I'd be, might be heretical. I'm not sure if I would necessarily start in tools or methodologies. I'd probably try to, uh, my bias is to start in understanding the, the problem and the business problem around your metrics and which ones you're trying to influence. And then, uh, uh, you know, treat it a little bit like a murder scene, coming up with all kinds of hypotheses to test and trying to find quick ways of pulling together the evidence to find the links in the, in between the bits of data. So that that would be, you know, where I would personally start on a very much a, a strategist way of approaching it. But there are things that can help in terms of tools and methodologies. I would personally, I would sorts of things that I think can help look for fast signals that drive commercial KPIs. Search is one of those. It's very responsive and it's very behaviorally driven. So that's great. Um, we're having a lot of, you know, we're doing a lot of interesting things with search data at Cantor. Uh, another thing might be to blend big and small data and technology is a great catalyst for that. So in Cantor, we use a thing called Stan Landscape AI and that helps us see changing emotional motivations and where the white spaces are to play and win. Uh, looking at sort of uh, big data sets of, uh, sort of humans' emotional needs uh, and complementing that with online qual. And then, you know, I'd also just look to experiment. I mean, we've got loads of cool ways of experimenting. One of them is called idea stock. But I think they're, you know, it's, it's looking at understanding the purchase potential through a mirror, mirroring a crowdfunding site, which sort of shows the potential of social purchasing dynamics. So there are loads of different ways of, so, you know, using technology uh, sort of methodologies and techniques that are creative and interesting. And, but ultimately, I would sort of look for fast signals, blend big and small, and experiment, really. And then everyone's going to have their own way of doing those things. But um, start, start, you know, identify the problem that you're trying to solve first, I think, would be my big thing. Last question. What is your personal motto? <laughs> the impossible question. Look, I started at Saatchi and Saatchi advertising agency and their motto is nothing is impossible and you know right now the world is bleeding and business is bleeding and uh brands are bleeding you know these are challenging times but the history of humanity has shown that we are capable of rising to challenges and that we're at our best and our most ingenious when we're when we're forced to adapt and boy are we having to adapt right now so maybe in the in the ashes of the pandemic there's there is an opportunity for us to all build a better future and we've all got a role to play in that. So I think my motto probably is nothing is impossible and to be the change you want to see in the world and to believe that big things can come from small actions. My guest today has been Dom Boyd, Cantar Managing Director, UK. Thank you, Dom, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thanks very much. Great to, great to have the opportunity to chat. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, I know I found a ton of value in this episode. I hope you take the time, screen capture, Put it on social media. If you tag me, I have something special I will send you. Have a wonderful rest of your day.